Welcome back to Essential Ethics and our series of recordings from the 2022 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, hosted by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I am Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. The theme of the conference in 2022 was Dialogue Across Difference. This conference session is a hypothetical sponsored by the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. In the hypothetical, I introduce the case of Nadia, who is a 15-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis who needs a permanent intravenous infusion device to facilitate her treatment. Her parents are unwilling to agree to this. They are planning a family gathering and an arranged marriage for Nadia. An infusion device will interfere with their plans. This case is hypothetical and does not describe a real patient. A panel of experts from the Children's Bioethics Centre, Professors Lynn Gillam, Claire Delaney and Dr Georgina Hall, are supported by a virtual panel from the Clinical Ethics Response Group, which wrestle with the case that is full of ethical heat and cultural sensitivities. The hypothetical is introduced by Mr Robbie Friedman, President of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. And we work to support the critical work that the CBC uh, performs, most often uh, at uh, very crucial times in patients uh, and their families' lives, often when they're uh, thrown into a bit of chaos unexpectedly. And this team really helps to um, helps them to navigate uh, the situation that they find themselves in. So you may not realise, but the CBC is entirely funded through philanthropic support. And that's where we come in. And we'd really encourage you beyond this conference, if you're able to, to continue your support. And one of the benefits of that support is attending conferences like this. But if you enjoy tonight's hypothetical, we conduct more of these throughout the year and you'd be welcome to join us there. Plus, we run uh, an annual golf day, a sailing day and other events which bring you together with uh, members of the CBC as well as other like-minded people um, to support this great uh, part of the Royal Children's Hospital. As I said, you're in for a real treat. I haven't been part of one of these online before, but I have been part of several of them in real life and they're really fascinating and and engaging and I promise you you'll be wanting more at the end of it. So without further ado I'll hand over to John who's moderating this evening and that's it. Thanks very much Robbie and uh, welcome to everyone from the team here at the CBC. So I'm uh, John Massey the clinical director and I'm going to present a case that's a hypothetical case but uh, a lot of challenges and I am supported then by Lynn Gillam, one of our clinical ethicists, and Claire Delaney, academic director of the CBC this year. Welcome, Lynn and Claire. And if you've got some questions, we really want this to be as interactive as we can. And so pop them in the chat. And we have Georgina Hall, our education officer, supported by funds raised by the Friends of the CBC Auxiliary, Robbie. And we're very lucky to have Georgina curating the chat, but also powering up the conference with the academic content that she helps us put together for uh, presentations such as tonight. We also have uh, some friends who are in what we've called the virtual front row, where we'll be able to draw on their support and their interest and their questions. So we we have with us Avi Bart, Sue Selwyn and Helen Stewart. Welcome, guys. 
So the case is about uh, Nisha, who is a 15-year-old girl who has cystic fibrosis. And she also has a brother, Ravi. He's 18 years old and has cystic fibrosis. Both Nisha and Ravi were born in Australia. Uh, their parents migrating here from India about 20 years ago. They were detected by newborn screening at about four weeks of age. The Whiter family is still in India, uh, but coming to visit later in the year with a group of friends. Only the nuclear family of Ravi and Nisha know about the diagnosis, and the family have been very secretive about the diagnosis. And they attend the CF clinic at the new Royal Children's Hospital located at Werribee and also known as St Guy's Hospital. One of the things we'd like you to think about as I present the case is where there might be ethical heat. This is those moments where you think, hey-ho, something's going on here. Maybe something doesn't feel quite right. Maybe there's a quandary. Maybe you feel uncomfortable. And when that's happening... That's ethics. And so perhaps as we go along, just jot down some moments that you see that you think about, and that's going to help us develop the discussion. So moving along, just to inform you a bit more about Nisha, she hasn't always had great engagement with her CF care, and this is her CAT scan on the right-hand side, and you see an arrow pointing where there's lots of thick white stuff and little hollows which are the airways and this is bronchiectasis and on the right hand side on the other side of the heart you can also see other large wide thick walled airways and it's quite diffuse through her lungs and that really is quite severe changes for a girl who's 15 years of age. As part of CF it's a progressive condition and this is only going to get worse. Nisha's had declining lung function with an FEV1 um, that was 76% and gone down to 62% of predicted over 12 months. And that's quite a rapid drop and concerning. She's had intermittent admissions for intravenous antibiotics and chest physio, which we affectionately call a tune-up. But she has poor venous access with increasing difficulty finding a vein and inserting a line. And it's really quite painful and difficult for Nisha when she does come in. So, the current situation is that the team is recommending insertion of a portacath, which I'll show you in a moment, regular admissions to hospital for a year. This is facilitated by having easy venous access with a portacath. And some of you might be aware that there are new drugs to help treat cystic fibrosis, but the type of CF gene mutations that Nisha has means that those drugs are not available to her. So we're really relying on very traditional standard CF care. Now the positive of this approach is it will significantly slow the rate of decline of her disease and her lung function and the port will make it easier for intravenous access for Nisha. There are some downsides. The port needs to be accessed once a month for a brief heparin flush. There's a small chance of infection but we now put them high up in the chest rather than the groin where they used to go in the old days. So the infection risk is not high. The central veins can clot and that seems to be a problem after about five to ten years. So these ports don't last forever. And a number of patients with CF have had two or three of those. And some people are concerned about the visibility of the portacath. So why don't, why don't we show you um, a portacath? So on the left-hand side above, uh, this is a, a girl... Uh, this is taken from the Great Ormond Street, all about your Portacath 
file um, and patient sheet. Uh, and it shows on the uh, right-hand side, just next to the breast and just under the armpit, a little bump with a surgical scar across that will sit just under the uh, bra there, but away from the breast. And then when it's accessed with a small device, a needle is pushed into the reservoir. It's a bit like trying to get a bullseye in darts when you're right up at the bullseye and just push it in. So there's none of sort of fear of missing. And in fact, the skin over it isn't particularly sensitive area of the skin, but topical anaesthetic can be applied. And from that reservoir is a tail that goes in along the central veins and comes in, comes in at the neck. So it's possible sometimes to see it often looking like one of the tendons in the neck. But unless you really, really knew, probably average layperson wouldn't actually know that uh, there was a portacath uh, in place. But Nisha's parents refused the portacath. They're concerned about its visibility and they're concerned that having a portacath will reveal the diagnosis. And this is important to them, A, because they haven't revealed the diagnosis to anyone, but also when the larger family and friends group come, there are plans for a marriage arrangement that is common in their ethnic group. And their view is that she can have the portacath after we've organised the marriage partner. Nisha is really rather silent on the question of the port. She doesn't like frequent admissions because of insertion of a regular long line, PIC or CVC. She does understand that she faces continued worsening of a CF lung disease and decline in her lung function. She doesn't quite understand the problems that the clinicians are worried about, particularly that she might actually run out of veins to place a line. So, so running out of veins means not having veins on the There's nothing on, on the, the back of your hands, hands right. in your elbows, get increasingly difficult to place. You're then putting them in, you know, what is plan C. You can get a line in if you have to. But if she's going to come in, say, four times over the next 12 months to slow this decline, that could be four central venous lines, mm. which would be compromising uh, which is risky and presumably yeah. it's even more unpleasant. I'm it, well, it is. And, thinking and, about it. And I think also in, in lots of ways with, with some of the kids, it, it compromises their decision-making about coming in. The family, the family even the doctors, who you know, don't want to be meanies. Mm. Um, whereas with a portacath, it's fairly straightforward. And that can be accessed. Uh, families, if they really can't or don't want to stay, it can be accessed. The antibiotics given in day med and then they go home and they finish the tune-up at home. So it really is less painful and facilitates care and doesn't stop them doing things. So if uh, Nisha wants to play netball, um, she, well, when it's accessed, that's not going to be so sensible, but day-to-day uh, -day she can play netball, go to sport. And really, you know, my impression is unless she's got you know, a T-shirt that's so tight it looks ironed on, no-one's actually going to notice it there. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I think only an expert's going to notice it is. Something in a the little neck. something yeah. in, in the neck would be my perspective. Okay, my perspective. But I have to say, Lynn, when I looked up the portacath to show those, what was on the internet wasn't that. That is what we would see. Right. And that's from Great Ormond Street. But the internet shots were terrible. So I could imagine, actually, if the family had looked up on the internet, what's a portacath? They would have seen actually very different positionings and placements. And, and something much look, more obvious. Yeah, wouldn't it look so pretty? Yeah. Okay. In, you know, in terms of neat and away. Perhaps not pretty to say you have a portacath. So we've heard from the family, we've heard from Nisha and then there's a multidisciplinary team meeting as we might expect with a complex disease and the team think that 
the family's attitude is causing Nisha to decline much faster than she would with a lung disease, be forced to have central lines that carry some increased medical risks and may damage those veins which later could make life a bit more difficult if she was going to have a lung transplant. So, Claire, I think we're at the point now where there may be some ethical heat. That's right. Um, and I'm really interested in our, our front row panel to, to, to begin this discussion. Some questions that help identify ethical heat are really just what's worrying you. What, what do you feel is of concern here or do you think there are some choices that could be made or that should be made? So I'm going to invite Beck or Avi or Sue or Helen. Oh, I love that phrase, ethical heat. You know, the ethical heat for me is always the young person and her voice in this, that necessarily when we're looking at those images of her lungs and her function and decline, you know, it really is this picture that's being painted. It's quite worrisome and um, really my ethical dilemma is more so around is there other contributions within that young person's mental health, physical space, environment that could also be contributing to this? Uh, when you say other other things contributing to this, contributing to her not having a say, is that what you're... Yeah, and also just maybe there might be other stress factors in her life as a young person who's trying to navigate things like high school, social circles. You know, she's a teenager first and foremost. So what other stresses does she have that could be potentially maybe, say, getting in the way of her being maybe more compliant with her lung clearance and things to do with her daily CF cares? That could also be one of the factors that is contributing to a decline in her lung function or maybe it's not maybe she is very compliant um, but that's where I think the young person would need to be involved in these conversations Mm -hmm. okay so that's interesting so your initial entry into this situation is to find out more information about just how she's traveling and what is influencing her decline apparent decline rather than go straight to the, the the team, you know, is judging and um, well, coming to conclusions. Also, if we're thinking about what Jing Bao was saying, and I mm. think uh, Beck's tapping right into that, is, you know, I'm medicalising this, mm-hmm. and, and Beck's trying to think of the broader yep. aspects of, of her life, and I'm trying to see where the medical bits mm, might sure. promote her, her broader life interests. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so... Yeah. That's you know a point of difference between yeah. my side of the desk, mm-hmm. for example, and yeah. uh, Nisha's side of the desk. Yeah, interesting. Sue or Helen or Avi? Thank you for this invitation. From a bioethics sort of, uh, position, it seems by the age of 15, already quite late to be so ill-informed or uninformed about her condition, her diagnosis and even her prognosis. So I guess is is one of the challenges how to improve that given the tight control from the parents without alienating them because they are her support system and now the hospital is her support system as well. So some kind of meeting, I don't mean in in the physical sense, but some kind of participant, I guess, developing her participation and and permission 
um, or making a space for her because the parents may not permit, but making a space for her to be informed, her condition, her prognosis um, and management possibilities. Mm. It's interesting that um, both Sue and Beck have, well, I'm I'm, um, summarising and it may not be quite accurate, but presuming that Nisha doesn't know, we we said that she was silent, didn't we, which is sort of Ah, interesting. I may have misunderstood that. No, I wasn't suggesting that, but it's just an interesting point to go to. And and that might, though, touch on, I mean, we're thinking about differences and obviously cultural differences is a very important thing. And I think, Sue, where I thought, well, where you were starting and I wondered where you were going to go was the parents may well have been informed. It's very likely they have been. Now, how well they heard and perhaps we haven't sent the message as clearly as, as we should have. But perhaps also they've just a different framework for understanding and dealing with uh, this disease or, or chronic disease uh, too, and may well be, as we encountered this afternoon about ADHD being so familiar to some people and potentially you know, cystic fibrosis from India, there may well be uh, less familiarity with that too. And I think that throws in a cultural Dichotomy? Are we allowed to have cultural dichotomy? I can't remember now. I've already no, forgotten. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have cultural dichotomy. Yeah, but it, there may be one that we just need to, to try and bridge or to, to, to lose. You referred before to the fact that you were going straight to a uh, medical perspective of it. So the question that I have on that is, why would that not be the right way or the starting point what's why is everything else important i mean you've got a medical diagnosis you've got medical professionals that have been doing this for a long time why not go straight there the second point is you just mentioned there may not be that much familiarity in india it could be the reverse often um, there may be more familiarity because there's more people on the street and that may have its own connotations and the third question sorry to throw it all in at once (laughs) In the intro, you mentioned that she's got an 18-year-old brother who also has cystic fibrosis. So do we know anything more about how the family and him have... how that progression has gone and how they've dealt with that? It's a really good question, Robbie. And we'll come to, to question three. We'll meet Ravi okay. uh, very shortly. Yeah. CF is just less common because of the gene mutations in India and a it lot of people common. are not... They don't have screening. A lot of people would die of you know, malnutrition yeah, and chest disease, yeah. which you wouldn't pick amongst the rest. But having said that, CF is not actually well understood in the uh, European sphere either, necessarily. Well, I guess perhaps I'm being over-reflective, but you know, I go to what I know, which is the medicine, the hardcore, and straight in. And you're right, at one level that's not wrong, but perhaps here I haven't quite picked that that's not necessarily going to go down either go down where or get to where we want to be. Right. So I said, uh, here it is, very dogmatic, very John Massey in CF Clinic. You've got, yep. to, do, you've got to do And CF Clinic's a bit like that. Yeah. And as, as are a lot of chronic disease clinics, it's program management, you do the right thing. And, we, and, and we, you know, I said about this earlier, we sort of dress it up as best interests. So yeah. we can then try and throw in our own e- ethic in that. And I guess, though, what we're thinking about is... I'm trying to go faster, yep. and I think here I might well have made it go slower. Right, which is a central reason for this whole conversation then. Yeah. I mean, How I do think... we get to where 
the best outcome is in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm presenting some medical facts, and the, but what, we, what I think that my colleagues in ethics will do is try and unearth the values and what matters to the patient and the patient in their family and the yeah. family. And then ideally... Do we have ideally? In, I think well, yes, ethics is definitely. ideally. Yes. It's the whole reason we're here. We marry it up, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty interested in asking Helen, then Arvi. Mm. Helen, why not go straight to the medical facts? From a social work perspective, what's your response to that? I mean, the medical facts for uh, Nisha are pretty clear. She's declining. She needs this for her health. She'll do a whole lot better with it, and we can probe how much better, but... Why not go straight there? It sort of makes sense in some way, but the reality is that in a family and in any situation, if we try to push a medical view too hard without understanding the context properly, there it may not work. I mean, because the family may not agree, their family may not comply, if you like, the family may withdraw. And I think in this situation there's an ethical issue we haven't really raised And that is that the family are withholding or delaying this um, insertion of the portacaf because they want to arrange a marriage in a somewhat deceptive way. If the prospective partner has no idea of the prospective bride's health condition, I would have thought that is an ethical issue from our perspective, but, again, with a respect and trying to understand the cultural context. So for me, that's an ethical issue we're sort of dancing around and saying, I think as a um, healthcare team, do we have the right to consider that as an ethical issue or are we only able to really explore the health implications of the refusal of the treatment suggested? And it's also the ethical issue of whether Nisha is actually happy with the idea of an arranged marriage, and she may well be. I don't think we should ever assume um, that in a culture where arranged marriage happens, that it's always negative for the people involved. But we don't, we can't hear Nisha's voice, and I think that's another problematic issue, which Beck alluded to, around how can we engage with this young person to be able to hear her voice. Yep, Arvi, Helen, I found your points really interesting, and I was sort of leaning into something similar. Certainly, you know, to extend that, there's the broader conversation in addition to the marriage itself around who has made this decision that this is not something that's going to be known to the public. And, of course, you know, it's perfectly within a patient and their family's rights not to share their health information with anyone else. However, in this situation, I'm thinking that um, I'm wanting to know more about who's made that decision that this is not something that we discuss because it looks like the um, effects of that decision are such that Nisha's um, care is being impacted by them with a view to that potential uh, arranged marriage which is upcoming. And, yeah, also, you know, considering the arranged marriage and the potential deception side of it in terms of not letting the prospective partner know, that, that's a fascinating question. My personal view is that it's not necessarily within our purview as healthcare professionals to be considering that side of it, but I definitely think there are a series of ethical issues that are being navigated, but I just don't necessarily see them as within the role of the healthcare providers, but it's a fascinating series of questions. And also, you know, the reality that probably sooner rather than later, 
the prospective partner is going to find out about CF. It's not the sort of thing that you can keep hidden for a long time. That was all one point. One other small point that I wanted to make is, you know, there's obviously a layer to this, which is the chronicity of it all. The reality that, you know, we're not talking about someone with a broken arm, bring them into hospital once, fix it and go home. You know, this is something that we're talking about. It's going to require a lot of follow-up and a lot of um, repeat interactions. And, you know, in that vein to think about why it's incredibly important to bring the entire family along with us and not just focus on the raw medical issues is in a sense because the long-term prospects of this person depend on the family buying. So their medical interests are also served by buying in the entire family, recognising that kids exist nested within families always and specifically in contexts where they're reliant on them to be brought to appointments and everything else that follows. Lynn, have you got any thoughts about these questions? I do, and uh, I'd really love to follow up a bit more on uh, Helen's comments and then what Avi said following on from that about whether the question of whether the arranged marriage is any of our business Mm. at all. And I can see ways in which it is. There's a, as Robbie and and John were talking about, there's a clear medical reason to have the portacath. The family's reason for not doing it, or at least delaying it for a significant amount of time, is not a medical reason at all. They're not saying we don't think it'll help. They're saying we've got this other reason, which is specific to their cultural background. And I'm really wondering, and I'd be very interested to hear the the audience uh, opinions on this, whether that's anything to do with the CF team at all, would it be ethically appropriate for anyone to say, look, yes, we understand arranged marriage, but on the other hand, the port's not going to be very visible, it's not actually going to decrease Nish's marriage prospects. So, so can we enter into a discussion about their cultural tradition or do we have to stay away from it because it's their cultural tradition? That's what I'd be interested to hear people's views about. Yeah. We also need to know how much harm the delay is going to cause because Mm. if we decide that mm, it's not going to cause that much change, she's been declining slowly, then does that make a difference to whether we have a right or a spot to get involved? Should we be focused on weighing up the harm that this family is causing rather than the reasons they're yeah, I think you're right, Claire. The the amount of harm that or damage that might be done to, to Nisha by delaying yeah. is, is an important factor. And I guess as soon as John started talking about lines going into veins in the neck, I just thought that's really awful and that would be very damaging for Nisha to have to do that. And it does sound like it's keeping her out of hospital, mm-hmm. like she's not willing to come in because of the, the pain she experiences of getting the lines in now. So I was assuming that it was fairly significant, but John, can we check in with you? If she goes another 12 months without the portacath, how bad is that? Well, she's lost 16% of lung function in the last 12 months, which is a lot. One or two percent a year might be the average decline. Okay. So, so that, she's had a steep she's decline. She's had a steep. And that you know, is not all about admissions to hospital. It may be about engagement with care between times. But yeah, there are other, those are some of the advantages of coming in about that greater engagement. So she's 62% now, loses another over nine months, 12%. That's 50%. Yeah. And rarely get a lot back. You know, so she engages in treatment, has a big year, really works hard. Uh, you might improve a bit. Mostly you just hold yourself and slow the 
slow the decline. Right. So... And do you reckon the portacath is the thing that makes the difference between her coming into hospital regularly and doing what needs to be done? I think it's a very sort of pivotal part of the care because I think it means that she'll come in, you know, have that uh, high-powered IVs, airway clearance, engage with care, give us time with her. You know, that's sort of one of the things too that, that's come mm-hmm. out here. And, you yep. know, in CF clinic, like lots of multidisciplinary clinics, is fast and furious. Lots of, you know, an hour in the room, all the specialties coming in. It's really quite hard to engage with the kids. But when they're in, we get the chance to come and, you know, sit yep. with them and chat and, and the families. And as well, and that's from all of the team. So it's sort of broader engagement with the team. And if you're not going to come in because it's painful to put a line and it's difficult, it's risky, you know, that, that's compromising her care. And nine months... You know, if that's when the family... And you can imagine then that's when the family have come and had their visiting and then there's a bit more faffing around and then there's time to get a bed. And at the moment, you know, if you're trying to do that, that could be three or four months. OK, so the delay is yeah. getting longer the more you think about it. Yeah. Any other comments about that? I have just watched prior to this, the previous session, with four... Um, I'm going to use the word for me, inspirational young people talking about their own disability and their experiences. So one of the important things seemed to be for us to understand how much or what Nisha does know. And, John, you made the comment earlier about what they might look up on the internet about cystic fibrosis is very different than the medical presentation and information you have. They all talked about the issue, and I'm using the word resilience, but it seems to me they're far more resilient the better informed they are to manage their current circumstance, to have a view about it, but to, I suppose, cope with it in a way. And I wonder what you in the bioethics team think about that. I think we're getting to the heart of the the case, isn't it, that there's a, a, a medical need that's modestly urgent, I don't know if that's quite the way of phrasing it, and a way of thinking about CF uh, that's not our way of thinking about CF, so it's not a shared idea. Although I think we share the same goals, which is you know, a healthy life, as long a life as, mm. as possible. Uh, we're trying to get there in some different, in some different ways. And, um, and, and as a paediatrician... You know, we do are concerned about the we talk about psychosocial, but the social environment and the well-being and what that might do for families. Although I do wonder, as we get interested, what Helen might say to this as we get adolescence gets further on, perhaps that obligation weakens too. To, and Helen, I think you made that point that you know you might be quite happy about uh, the arranged marriage, but that it could be a sideshow. Not, I mean, do the reasons matter, Flynn? Of, of why they don't want to do this. Yeah, so I think the point a lot of people have made is going in with big boots and saying you absolutely must come in and have the portacath now for these very good medical reasons uh, is possibly counterproductive in the long term to managing her health. Um, but maybe other than that, the actual reasons don't matter. Or do they? I mean, is this a child protection issue that she's being denied medical care because the family's arranging a marriage for her? That's the other end of the spectrum of way of looking at it, you know, this is a wrong is being, a harm is being done to her. Um, Georgina? Well, Claire's original point when she was summing up was, where's the ethical heat in this? So to me, it's it's sort of, it's split. I feel like there's two 
hot pots. Yep. Uh, and the first one is to your point, Lynn, about do the reasons matter? So if we're accepting that the parents are the decision makers, does it really matter whether what's behind it or are we going to delve into, you know, arranged marriages and stuff? Or is it more just serving you a bit of your own medicine, the zone of parental discretion? Mm. Is it within their discretion to make the decision, whether we agree with it or not, to a point to then bring Doug Deakamer in where it's the harm threshold? So mm. where, And that's, I think, what you were getting at. Is nine months long... Like, can we hold off for nine months? So that's, that's one ethical hot pot. Mm. And to me, the other one is... Well, should they be the ones making the decision anyway? Which I think um, Helen and, and, and everyone else has brought up, that as a 15-year-old, should Nisha mm. be a lot more front and centre in terms of her wishes and deciding with her and bringing her into that conversation? And so to me, it, I don't know if that's helpful, but just to sort of clarify that there's sort of two ethical yep. things going on and I think that's probably where they need to start getting to unpacking those kind of issues. Well, one, one point I'd like to make is, since you were name-dropping there, Lynn and um, Dekeba... De yes, yes. <laughs> um, I'll name-drop uh, Jingbao, who, who opened the conference today, and I'm, I'm just also struck by the two, two hotspots that you have identified and others are points of conflict, points of, you know, parents want this, but we think something else, and Nisha should be speaking for herself rather than for her parents. So taking Jing Bao's message is, could, could the ethical question be, you know, should we be identifying some common ground here and, mm. and how do we go about doing that? Mm. Which sort of reframes the, the multidisciplinary team meeting that, that focus on, you know, what they're cross about, what they see as different to what they think. And so it's, it's just a really interesting reframing whether asking that question gets us closer to some dialogue or meaningful dialogue, I guess, needs to be tested. <laughs> well, I think no, if there is a mistake, um, it's not to have some dialogue, it's not to listen. Yeah. So we, we hope from that that resolution will come from a shared understanding. That would be the final thing. But at least our process has to be right. And I think that you know, considering all these perspectives and understanding them at you know at a deeper level, and you know as a clinician, this sort of example is all too easy where the bare facts are presented, presented at a multidisciplinary meeting. But there's a lot more that's gone on that may or may not be already known and hasn't necessarily isn't necessarily presented, and the people are getting hot under the collar, which is defeating the, the way we go about the, the best way to go about this. And Arby's keen to, to mention something. I think he might be getting hot under the collar. Oh. Arby, <laughs> Arby, would you like to jump Good. in? Thank you, Georgina. Something that's kept swirling around my mind by, while everyone's been talking has been, uh, and this maybe goes to the heart of sort of the theme of the conference in the sense of dialogue across difference, like we're talking about um, a different set of cultural understandings and sometimes I wonder how good we are at assessing values in a different cultural world and you know we're talking about arranged marriage and that clearly you know looking at some of the messages in chat is bringing up a whole lot of different ideas for different people and whether we're and you know I'm also reflecting on the MDT and the attitudes that were positioned as the response of the um, attendees to the MDT and sometimes I think like in having this dialogue across difference 
are we actually equipped to even understand whether things are good or bad for people in their cultural context or, you know, to what extent are we equipped and how do we make sense of their worlds as they are? And, you know, like, for example, the value for this family and this person of getting married in this specific way might be incredibly high. We're coming with a series of medical um, evaluations about what's best for them and, in doing so, we might be compromising her marriage prospects, which might be something that's incredibly important to her and her family in a way that just isn't going to be resonant to me because I don't understand the world that she's coming from, even though I might have a parallel to what an arranged marriage might be in my culture or in a different part of an Australian culture. I don't understand in her world and I really don't know how to move forward from that. To what extent are we likely to be able to influence their reasoning, their side of the reasoning, what I think we might have better luck with is potentially increasing the weight of the medical prognosis and diagnosis and our view of that. I doubt very much in this circumstance that we're going to change their view on arranged marriage. Mm. So the question I have actually to the others on the panel as well is, to what extent do you think that that is a fruitful line of... Um, dialogue except potentially to engage them with it to show concern and understanding of their values and perspective but if we're trying to get to a certain different outcome I feel like we're we're not going to change that side of it but we might be able to increase the importance of that side of it but it's just a question. Interesting thought. I mean, I think, Robbie, one of the things we often do in medicine is, you know, badger and badger and badger and badger until we get our way um, is, what, is, is, is what can worry me. And, mm. um, yeah, you're, I, you know... Well, we're on the other hand, maybe the parents don't have an appreciation of the things that you were talking about. You haven't yet That's said right. the well, words. we haven't yet had a conversation. I don't think we've yet had a, had a conversation. Yes. We've... Um, Lots of thoughts and ideas, and um, yeah, but maybe I don't you haven't found the words that convey the significance. So, for example, when yeah. you're talking before, it was literally the veins in the neck that got me. Okay, the rest was mm. just words, but as soon as you said that, I got this visceral reaction. I thought, "Oh, that's awful." And so, maybe more conversation it's and perhaps more understanding of the parents to find the right words, to, not scaring them. The right words yeah. to support them. Because you see a scariness, but it doesn't mean that you can communicate that scariness necessarily. Your your words for framing the scariness don't necessarily sound scary. Yeah, and I don't think we should be using words to to frighten them in. I think what we, uh, I think, um, I guess, um, some dialogue (laughs) is what's needed, and and sit back and some more listening to understand. Because I think, Robbie, the answer. Isn't that we're going to change their attitude about about the marriage? But what we're going to do is promote uh, respect for each other. So yeah. I listen to them. Maybe yeah. th- they'll listen to, to me yep. and the team. Yep. It doesn't have to be me. You know, they're yeah. a big team to do that, and that's what listening might do. Mm. Now um, but, uh, there's a bit of a part two to come, so well, we there need is. to get that. But um, I just want to comment on um, because I mentioned Jingbao before. He's popped up. Thank you, Jingbao. <laughs> that um, ethically there is the issue of the primacy of ethics uh, and uh, what is the right thing to do versus following sociocultural practice. Yeah. So I think we, we, we are swirling around this, like how much... We, we certainly do need to probe what they understand, how, how, you know, whether they're really... How, as Avi was saying, 
is this a really strong value in their in their family or is is the refusal related to that value actually yes yeah. we're only assuming that yes maybe at the moment yeah yeah. Can I just say one quick thing, which I thought, picking up on what Avi said, which I thought was really fascinating, was Avi was making the point that uh, it might be really hard for someone outside Nish's cultural context to really understand mm. the, the practice of marriage and all of the values that go into it. And it really made me wonder whether, if we're having dialogue across difference, if we're talking with each other, is it about understanding? Is understanding the aim? Or is it perhaps as John was suggesting, it's showing mutual respect, which is not necessarily the same as getting that I can walk in your shoes understanding. And I do think that that's a potential barrier to, to the dialogue sometimes because the difference seems so great. You feel like I couldn't possibly... Whatever you say to me, I'm not really going to get it. So why would I even start? I'm hoping that we're having the dialogue and a genuine interest in our patient and their their family and their life. Uh, and not so intrinsic interest and not just instrumental to getting to the get job as I see it mind. done. Yeah, um, good point. Well, I hope so. Yeah, Should and we... I think one, one of the points that I made about dialogue is that one thing it can achieve is, is greater understanding and even agreement, but another point is partial understanding. So it may not be that you get to fully understand and maybe that's not even possible. But some is better than none, Claire? I think certainly Katie Moore is implying that. That, yes, it, um, the effort of trying seems really important. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say some is better than none. And, and I but think we'd all want Anne Price to be on the corridors that day because Anne, I think, goes some way to, to, to unpacking that and trying to understand because she's saying... Is it an arranged marriage or is it a forced marriage? And I think that brings out the nuances of it, doesn't it? Is yeah. it and, and then Andrew Court jumps in. My head's um, I'm just spinning here because it's another great point. He's saying, well, if, when's the arranged marriage planned for? Because if it's forced and, it, and she's under 18, that's not legal here. Mm. Uh, and it brings up all those issues about mm. do we have a slightly shifted sense of our responsibility? Yeah. And then also do we know where she and the husband will live and will she be catered for and cared for with her medical needs if they're perhaps not disclosed or they're played down or they're not even catered for if she's moving internationally? Should we be going there? Should we? Should we yeah, I think we, we should. Yeah, <laughs> gosh. But that question of should we be going there, yeah. mm. thinking about Andrew's questions... Yeah. Um, Maybe tells me we have to go there a little bit. But anyway, well, let's keep see going. what we get here, shall we? So, just to learn a bit more about the family, uh, Ravi is Nisha's brother, and he has cystic fibrosis. And a social worker in the multi D team reminded us that the family had resisted a portacath for Ravi when he required one a couple of years ago, when he's around the same age as, as Nisha. But they agreed to that because Ravi wanted it for very similar reasons that we might be promoting it for Nisha to make admissions easier and make venous access uh, easier. But they listen to Ravi in terms of decision-making. Nisha rarely says anything when her parents are with her. She tends to look down. But she's intelligent. Uh, she's doing well at school. It just tends not to speak up very much. It's just part of natural who Nisha is. But she's not embarrassed about her diagnosis and some of her close friends know about it, which I think I would generally... But the other way of me is saying that that's a healthy thing. Some members of the CF team uh, have talked to Nisha and they report that she's quiet and deferential but knows her own mind. 
Her preference is to have the port. Uh, it would be easier for her to have admissions and she thinks her parents are overreacting about how visible the port might be and therefore disclosure of the diagnosis to a wider group of people. But some members of the team are hot under the collar. Um, they think the way father treats his daughter is different to their son and is unfair and they also think they should just tell the parents what they know about Nisha's views. So Nisha's views have been disclosed to the to the team. So Claire, there's some more heat, I think. Yes, so this is our second opportunity for you. And maybe the hotspots are sort of the same, or maybe something about this extra bit of information has raised something different for you. So I'm interested in our panel's views here. Again, I, I really was thinking along the similar lines to um, Arby in terms of at the end of the day, who am I or who are we to know any context around this marriage in the sense that this could potentially be the happiest day of this young woman's life that's approaching and we are bringing to it our own personal judgments of what's acceptable. So I really just tried to put that all to one side and just come back to a young woman who's 15 who's approaching a time in her life which could be, you know, typically quite stressful for a number of reasons. And then, you know, on top of this, she is potentially going to be uh, having a number of life transitions. And so maybe my thoughts were in terms of our responsibilities to this young woman is to provide the best education we can possibly around things like family planning and what her future looks like in terms of genetics and passing on. And she would have to have had, she would, you know, given that your second part was that she's quite a bright young woman and, you know, she would have to have definitely some level of understanding in terms of her brother's got CF and, and the risk factors around that. You know, the team has engaged with her, so there's obviously a relationship there that I think can be explored on a much you could potentially be offering uh, regular education sessions with with that young person for a number of different reasons. At the end of the day, if this is a young woman who's deemed competent from a cogn cognitive perspective, that decision really, I feel like, you know, lays in, in her hands regarding that portacath. And if that is what she wants, you know, that is something that needs to be presented to the parents in conjunction with Nisha and the medical team as a discussion that the dialogue is both, you know, that the terms that were mentioned before, both respectful and supportive of that young young woman, her parents, because at the end of the day she has to go home and, you know, she's under their roof. Then I also very much agree with Helen's comments as well. So, Helen, uh, Beck, we're, uh, you know, we had a whole conference last year about deciding with children and, and trying to support children as, and, and adolescents, particularly as, as decision-makers, but... And not all cultures do that or make decisions in the same way, often perhaps more group-made uh, group decisions or perhaps, you know, in the different from the Western liberal democratic tradition um, that are other ways that the family... I'm interested to see, Helen, if, if you've had some experience with those that sort of situation. Again, it's about having dialogue and understanding how families make decisions... Our family, uh, in this particular case, are the family aware of Nisha's um, desire for the portacath? It's important to understand the sense because, as Beck pointed out, she still lives under the family's roof, and maybe culturally the family 
don't put as much weight on her opinion as she's a daughter and not a son. And while we might find that outrageous, <laughs> it may not be in that culture and it may not be to Nisa, but it may be. And if we don't understand how the family make decisions and what weight they put on different members' opinions, we could be actually causing a lot of angst for Nisha. So I think, we, you know, if she's disclosing to some members of the team that this is what she wants, I think it would be important to get her consent to share that information with her family. I also just wanted to say a little bit um, earlier about, as you pointed out before, John, the importance of trying to find common ground basic common ground is I'm sure the family and what they've said want the best for Nisha, as do the team. And perhaps talking about if we did delay the portacath, that could actually interfere with her if they're wanting an arranged marriage because this is the right thing to do and what would make them and Nisha happy. Perhaps delaying the portacath would actually work against that because of her health would be if you know if you're saying she could use fifty percent of lung function, that's going to be hard to hide. Um, from extended family and friends and the possibility and possible partners. So I guess if you can find that common ground, you can work together on those goals. If that their goal is to um, find a suitable partner for her by not agreeing to the portacath, it's quite possible they're actually um, jeopardising that goal for her. Yeah, great points, Helen. Any other comments? From, from the panel, or is there anything going on in chat there? Oh, Anne, again, has served us a humdinger. A recent case. <laughs> she has. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, a Hasidic Jewish family, uh, daughter, late diagnosis of Turner's syndrome, which can result in infertility. So they do not want the daughter to be told of the diagnosis, mm. let alone any future husband or family. So I'm just sitting here thinking through this, thinking we, I think we would all probably recoil in horror at the thought of not telling the truth to the, the patient herself. But is it, is it just as bad? We've, you know, Nisha knows the truth, but if we don't allow her or empower her to make the decision for herself or we don't mind that a bit more, is that just as bad as not telling the truth? Like, I think... Two words there are really important. Do we allow her to sort of find a way of telling the truth or do we have a more positive duty to empower her? <laughs> Which I think is an interesting question. Yeah. So in relation to the, the case Anne's talked about, um, I think that that's, there's a clear ethical difference between that and this situation, which is in, in the, Anne's case, the person who has the medical condition is not being told about it. Whereas here, Nisha does know what her medical condition is. The similarity is that other people are not being told, and that is presumably in the context of thinking about being able to get married and not wanting a future partner to, to know the implications of the medical condition. So it does feel a little bit like we're potentially participating in a deception, which is, I think, one of the things that Helen said right back at the start. Mm. But I wonder if that's also exactly the place that we should not go and it's got nothing to do with us. I mean, it's one thing to say this young person should know their own diagnosis. It's another thing to say, um, and you should inform prospective marriage partners about it. 
Lynn, Lynn, I'd just sort of come back then about, you know, you're talking about sort of obligations and here, and, you know, we, we were preparing a, a, a podcast. It was about deciding with children, which was last year's theme, but also something that is, is relevant so much in what, in what we're doing. We're taking a human rights approach, and in Article 3 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child for the United Nations is mm. this sort of phrase that shall assure, so governments, agencies shall assure, the environment whereby a young person can have the knowledge and understanding and ability to express an opinion. So we're sort of setting up that environment mm. for them and that's mm. our ob obligation. Now, they may choose not to and that's Yes, they choice. may choose not to. But or, we yep. haven't, you know, at least through the United Nations, if I understand it correctly, that obligation is quite strong. It's a right, Lynn. I know that'll also give a visceral reaction <laughs> uh, from you. Um, to set those that environment up to, to give it opportunity. Yeah. So here we come back to Claire's point about empowering, I think. Mm. So Nisha clearly has a view and she has expressed it. Mm. So it's not that she's been, been unable to. One of the questions for us, I think, is whether it's our obligation to empower her to stand up for her own view more. Or at least to, to offer her the choice. For her, yeah. Yes, yeah. Should yeah. we be advocating for her, or just, or should we say, well, she's got a view, she's expressed it, she could choose to express it to her parents if she wants to. Mm. If she hasn't, then that's entirely mm. up to her. Yeah, it's like a thin or thick view of respect for autonomy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> now, John, we've got four minutes to go, so we need our two endings. What you're saying, Claire, is that people want to actually know what might have happened. Maybe. So, well, we first have to say thank you, Robbie, um, making a difference by creating an ethically sensitive community at RCH is, I think, so thank you very much for the work that you do, for the friends and the money that you raise to support uh, what we do. And people can find us in various ways or find the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre there. But I'm keeping everybody in suspense. So there are two endings. And one is that Nisha deteriorates and presents to emergency department in respiratory distress, not in immediate danger of dying, but she's very unwell. Perhaps she caught one of those viral illnesses going around. And the parents are still saying no. In fact, to put one of those necklines in, Lynn, is about as difficult as putting a port in. So um, if you're going to go to theatre and spend an hour, you know, getting ready and digging around in the neck to put the neckline in, it's not an acute emergency... You might just use to put the port in, and putting the neckline in might compromise the side you could use you know, for the future port. So you might just decide to put a port in because she needs, um, needs that. Um, so uh, do we override the parents at this point? It's a bit more emergent. And I'm not sure that... Uh, well, we can necessarily answer that tonight, can we, Claire? No, we, have to wait. we have to wait for next year. I think it gives us some time... Or oh, next hypothetic. Next time for some dialogue. The other one is that Nisha continues to manage through her health and though she requires several trips to the hospital, she tells the consulting clinician that she's not going to accept the arranged marriage idea, but she's not also going to go against her parents uh, until after the visitors have left. So I think she wants to stay engaged in her family. But do we advocate for Nisha and try and educate her to be more independent so that she resists her parents and obtains better treatment? So we're going to empower her, but maybe empower her against her parents' wishes. That worries mm. me a little. There's some heat there. I, it, heat's yeah. turned up. Mm. And so 
we'll have to save that for next year. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from the 2022 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference. Please give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with your colleagues and friends. The conference sessions were recorded in the creative studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. The National Paediatrics Bioethics Conference was supported by generous funding from the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation and the Humanity Foundation. The conference will be on again this year in September. To find out more about the conference and the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, please visit us at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.